Heavenly Father, help us to turn our focus and our attention to you. That as your spirit moves us and prompts us, we would turn our eyes and our ears and our hearts to Jesus. As we go to this, the written word, it reveals to us Jesus Christ, the living word. And we desire to know him and in knowing him to be more like him and in being more like him to follow him and to be your children, your people, your church. We come this morning from all different places, all different walks, all different journeys, taking different gates and different speeds and, and different attentions and attentiveness and, and makeups and compositions. But we come to you. May you be honored and glorified in us, through us, by us, that the world might see him in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to dismiss the kids, God's backyard, to head out. And the rest of us, we're going to turn to the book of Matthew. Now, we have been in the Gospel of John for 29 weeks. We're going to take a break. Last week, um, we had, uh, my dad was here. Um, We're going to take a break from John for the Advent season. And we just want to take a look at, um, a little bit at the Advent passages and scriptures. However... Uh, I, I have now been a, a pastor for 18 years. That means for 18 years I have had to come up with an Advent series. You can only preach Mary so many times. Um, and last year we spent a, a great deal of time talking about Mary. Um, today, So this Advent season, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, I want to engage the, the narrative of uh, Jesus' incarnation, what we celebrate Uh, at Advent, um, from the perspective of longue durée. You go, ooh. Everybody do it together. Ooh. What is longue durée? Uh, Longue durée is a French term, shocking, um, and it is the perspective on history that views history in the long duration, the big picture of history. And the reason that this is important is because it is very, very easy for us in our modern world to view things like the Bible through through the lens of what we call historical compression. Historical compression is that we look at the past and we kind of see it all kind of smushed together. Um, That everything that came before us kind of didn't really change or move or anything like that. And it's interesting that we do that and the perspective that we have on the world and how it alters the perspective, uh, our view of the past. Let me illustrate that from something contemporary. How many of you own a smartphone? Okay. In 2007, how many of you owned a smartphone? Okay. 15 years The iPhone has been out. It was released in 2007. How many of you remember the first iPhone? The first iPhone had no app store. You couldn't just customize it. You couldn't move things around. You could do these crazy things. You could make a phone call, something I never use my phone for anymore. You could go on the Internet, and uh, you could... Uh, you could listen to your music. 
That was what you did. As long as you downloaded that music to your iPhone using iTunes. All right? You, you, there was a, a lot that went in there. Now, now, today, we can stream our music. We can spend a couple of bucks on Spotify or iTunes and just have all of our music on demand, right on our fingers. Last night, we watched the Guardians, and Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. The first song on that show is my new favorite Christmas song. Now, my previous favorite Christmas song, anybody want to guess what my previous favorite Christmas song was? Nope. <laughs> Father Christmas by the Kinks. All right, which if you don't know this song, it's one of the greatest songs ever. All right, it's just an amazing song. Um, and uh, it talks about, and for my dad, I'll have a job because he needs one. And for me, I'll take a machine gun so I can scare all the kids on my street. It's a great Christmas song. Um, anyway, uh, the, so they replaced it with It's Christmas Time, which is a great song. My wife and I are watching the show, and I immediately went, I love this song. I need this song. I want this song. And within three seconds, I had the YouTube link, which I sent immediately to Bob Bragdon um, because I wanted him to share in my Christmas joy. Uh, sent it to our daughter, who just laughed and went, that's weird. And then uh, I immediately added it to my Christmas playlist, which exists on my phone and now has Father Christmas by the Kinks, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, <laughs> and now it's Christmas time. Um, and I have three songs in my Christmas rotation. I'm super excited about that. There are a couple others, but I don't usually put those in. Anyway, we have this immediate access to things, but it's only been 15 years. I remember being one of the first users of Amazon.com when all they sold was books and their name made sense. Um, and they didn't do any of the stuff that Amazon does now. And at Christmas, this is how addicted I was to Amazon.com. Christmas, they sent me gifts. Like a mug and a bookmark thanking me for being a customer of this new service. And I loved that idea. Today, I don't even go to stores. I just go to Amazon and buy everything there and it shows up at my house in a couple of days. But back in the day, right, this was a very different world. How many of you remember when 1-800 numbers spelled things? All right. How many of you remember having to look up, and anybody the under, under the age of 25 is going to have no idea what this is, having to look up people's phone number in the white pages? Exactly. The yellow pages were for businesses. The white pages were for people. Do you guys remember the blue pages? Do you remember what the blue pages were for? Government. All right, for the government, you had three directories. Almost nobody got the blue pages, because who wants to call the government? Um, anyway, our world has changed so radically in my lifetime, and I'm not very old. When you get go back and you start thinking about, okay, well, people that were born in the 50s, they watched black and white TV. All right, or you go a little bit further, and people say, what was the television? Right? Um, and they were watching newsreels at the movie theater to find out what was happening in the war, reading the newspaper, something that some people still do today, I've heard. And you go back even further, you realize there was a time, can you fathom this idea that there was a time when a hundred miles, a journey of a hundred miles, a time in America's history where a journey of a hundred miles was like you were going to go there for a month. 
You, you, were, not, you were not driving down to Boston from, from, uh, from northern New Hampshire unless you were prepared to spend a whole season there. Today we just jump in the car, we drive, we do our thing. So we go through this historical compression. So I want to take some time and kind of do this long view of everything that's happening in the Gospels. And we open with Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son or the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is how Matthew opens his narrative of Jesus' birth. It is how he opens the entire gospel. And if we're not careful, we skip over it. Because, I mean, let's be honest. How many of you on Christmas Day sit down to read the Bible, to read the account of Jesus' birth, and go, we can't wait to read Matthew 1, 2 through 16. Everybody gets excited for all of the names, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac in the old King James, you got begets. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat, you know, and go through Judah and his brethren, and Zerah, and Tamar, and Perez, and all of these names, we, we kind of make them up as we go. But I want to take the long view of what Matthew is talking about when he opens his narrative with this statement the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this week, now I'm going to skip down a little bit. You'll see in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew takes Jesus' story, the, the long history of Israel, he breaks it up into three parts, from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation or the exile in Babylon, and from the exile to Christ, 14 generations. He breaks it up all right, um, into f- even units. And I want to take a few weeks and talk about that, those sections of their long history. So I'm going to beg the indulgence of those of you that grew up in Sunday school, because some of this may sound familiar to you, but hopefully there will be a lot new to you. But for some of you, you've never heard this as a big story, as the big story of the Bible. And I think it's important that we put Jesus in his context. And we put the author of the Gospel of Matthew in his context, what he means. And what he was appealing to when he begins his narrative with Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So let's start with Abraham. Let's start there. Now there's Genesis, there's 10 chapters, 11 chapters before Abraham, but let's just start there. Because I want us to see everything that's happening here. The story of Abraham takes place somewhere around 3,500 to 4,000 years ago, closer to 4,000, in a period we call the, the Late Bronze Age. So we're talking about something in the distant past. When the one true God chose to reveal himself to one man um, who we know as Avram or Avraham. Now, his original name in the biblical record is Avram, which means exalted father, Abram. 
God later changes his name and makes a joke. Hebrew loves little puns and changes his name to Avraham, which means father of the multitudes um, or, the, or the nations. God chooses to reveal himself to one man. And according to the book of Genesis, Abraham's father, Avram's father, Terah, had led his family out of their homeland, uh, what in the Bible is called Ur-Hashdim. Now, if you open your Bible and your Bible has maps in it, and you go to the back of your Bible and you look for a map of Abraham, and if there is one, it'll have a little dot marked Ur, uh, Ur of Kashdim, and it'll be down in southern Iraq around where Kuwait is, and that's wrong. It just is. Um, that site, which is known as Ur or Sumer, um, it's one of the cities of Sumer, um, was identified by a guy named Leonard Woolley in the 1800s as the birthplace of Abraham. And he had a very definite reason for doing that. He wanted it to be the birthplace of Abraham. That was his only foundation. He was digging a hole in a, in a ruin. He found a bunch of riches and he said this had to be where Abraham was from. Everybody that let, read Leonard Woolley's books went, well, that's where Abraham is from. It doesn't make any sense. I'll give you a couple reasons. Number one, there were no Chaldeans there. And number two, they didn't speak a language anything like the language that he, Abraham speaks. So they're not from there. Where is Abraham from? Abraham is from the region. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of Kurdistan? John has. John's been there, right? Or sent people there, right? Kurdistan is a region in northwestern Iraq, southeastern Turkey. There's a group of people that live there. Stick with me. They're called the Kurds. Um, Stan just means the land of, all right? Um, and that region is where Ur of Chaldees was. And we know this because of two ancient inscriptions referring to Ur of Haran, um, or Ur, the city of Urah, the trades of the city of Urah. And this is where he was from, north, northern Mesopotamia. And his father Terah took his family out of that place, and they went to a place called Haran, which we know of, we can see it, we observe it, archaeologists, archaeologists have dug it up, we know that it was occupied at this time, um, and they settled there for a little while till Abraham's father died. Now this is an interesting dynamic from my point of view as a historian, what happens here. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram, God visits Abram and he says, leave the land, of the house of your fathers and go to the place where I will show you. Now, Abraham is later in Deuteronomy chapter 26 referred to as, this is one of, one of my second favorite title for somebody, the wandering Aramean. My favorite, by the way, is those who ride on white donkeys, which is the term for traveling, uh, traveling minstrels and poets in ancient Israel. That's what I want to put on my business card. Eric DeVitro, all of my qualifications, says rides on a white donkey just to confuse people. Um, but, Aaron, but Abraham is uh, what's called an Aramean. This is the group of people in the Bible. Aram is translated as Syria. But they're a group of people who speak a very specific language. You, I'm not going to bore you with all this stuff. And they are scattered throughout the ancient world. And when the environment and culture and warfare and everything caused their population to grow, the Arameans would always bump up against the more settled parts of the world. 
And if those settled parts of the world were, um, were militarized and in good economic condition, they would fight against the Arameans and push them back. But if the Arameans expanded their sphere and people weren't able to push them back, the Arameans would move in and they would take over. And Abraham seems to be part of this population expansion that is taking place in the, the, the late Bronze Age. And Yahweh, the God, his God, appears to him. He says, I want you to leave the house of your father. One of the distinctive marks, by the way, of the Arameans is they refer to everybody by a formula, the house of, and they fill in the box. That's how they describe themselves. It's a cultural marker. It's how you know you're dealing with Arameans. Uh, or their descendants. He says, I want you to leave your house and I want you to go establish uh, yourself in the place where I send you. And so Abraham decides that's a good idea. Might as well follow the God that's sending me out there. And he wanders down to a place we call today Canaan um, or modern day Israel, Lebanon. Canaan, by the way, it just means, uh, it, it means the flat place. That's what it means. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you've got real questions why they called it that. Because um, Israel's got a lot of hills. Um, but Canaan is actually a catch-all for the area that he wanders down uh, into. He is looking for this place that God wants to give him. And while he is there, Abraham establishes himself um, as uh, what we would call a chieftain. Now, here, I really, really want you, if you have grown up in Sunday school and you, read, you saw a bunch of Bible, kids' Bibles and things, and Abraham's kind of dressed, he's got a long robe and a bunch of stuff, I just want you to go ahead and chuck that. Uh, chuck it the same way that you chuck the idea that Abraham was some white-skinned, paled, white Santa Claus-looking dude. Just chuck that. That's not who Abraham was um, at all. Um, Canaan was dominated by a little group you may have heard of, the Egyptians. In fact, Abraham, one of the first things he does when he goes to Canaan is he goes to Egypt. Now, um, why does he go all the way from Syria to Egypt um, with his family and his population and all that stuff? Again, we have to deal with uh, economics and agriculture and farming and all these things. But he goes down to Egypt. There's a whole brouhaha that he gets into with the Pharaoh. And then in the, in the biblical record, it actually says that Pharaoh gave orders concerning him and sent him on his way. That's fascinating for me, again, looking at the long history of this, because what that means is, um, how many of you have ever heard of William the Conqueror? Some of you? How many of you have ever heard of Rollo, not the candy? All right. Rollo was William the Conqueror's great-great-grandfather. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, William the Conqueror is the descendant of Vikings. The Vikings were raiding. Uh, Viking, by the way, this is, another, this is me being a language nerd, so forgive me. But Viking is actually a verb. I go a Viking. Um, no one ever walked around going, I are a Viking. All right, It was, I go a Viking. And what happened was, similar situation. Uh, there was a warm spell. The fish population and the grain production in Scandinavia increased. There was a population surge in Scandinavia. And everybody took their younger sons and, and them and said, get on a boat and go find somebody somewhere else to go. They got on the boat. They sailed down. They found France. They raided. They burned. They pillaged. 
until Rollo brings his longboats, R-O-L-L-O, that's his Christian name. Um, his Viking name is harder to pronounce, Rolfer. Um, and he, he rides up the river, gets to Paris, and the French king goes, this is not good. He says, I got a proposition for you. This is what happened, believe it or not. He says, I got a proposition for you. You convert to Christianity, get baptized, and I will make you the Duke of Normandy, that section of France that's out by the coast that you just came through. I'll give it to you, and my only condition for it is, if any other Vikings come, you kill them. Rollo went, cool. Converted to Christianity, became Rollo, goes, or becomes Roland, or goes out to um, Normandy, becomes the Duke of Normandy, his great-grandson, William the Conqueror, invades England, becomes the King of England, and the kings of England now are descended from William the Conqueror. That's a big, long history thing. Same thing happens with Abraham. Abraham shows up in Egypt. Pharaoh is kind of worried about, uh, about Abraham. Abraham's worried about Pharaoh. Pharaoh's worried about Abraham. Abraham, the whole thing, Pharaoh says to him, why don't you go out to the edge of my kingdom? And you can live there, and you can settle there, and you can do whatever you want, and the only thing I ask of you is if that anybody raids my frontiers, you fight them back. Abraham, by the way, does that. In Genesis chapter 14, he raises an army to fight against five Mesopotamian kings, um, whoops up on them, um, and rescues his nephew Lot. So Abraham gets sent out to the far edge of the world. That's, by the way, the reason that Abraham doesn't show up in the Egyptian records. How often do we talk about people from North Dakota? <laughs> Just the reality, right? Um, he sends him out to the far edge of his kingdom, and that's where Abraham lives. And Abraham lives in a semi-agrarian situation. During the winter, he goes down to the Negev, the desert, a place called Beersheba, where he's dug a bunch of wells. And all during the rainy season, it accumulates water so his herds can be taken care of. And when the, rain, when the winter is over, he, he starts to migrate north, and they, they've left behind crops and things, and they work their way up the hills um, to a place that he settles... Um, he likes, Abraham likes this place called the Oak Trees of Mamre. Eventually he buys a cave there, buries his wife there, his children are buried there. Um, Abraham is just making a circuit on the edge of the world. So this is the fascinating thing to me about what's happening in the biblical record. Is that the rest of the world didn't even take notice of what was happening. No one's talking about Abraham. No one cares about this chieftain in the hill country uh, on the eastern edge of Egyptian influence. By the way, I mention that because the, the odds are that Abraham actually uh, dressed and acted more like an Egyptian than we tend to think he did. Um, and probably was, uh, spoke several languages that he could engage uh, these people in. Abraham lives on the edge of the world, unnoticed by everybody else. And yet slowly there is established the history that changes the world when it gets to Jesus. Fascinating thing about history, it doesn't tell us the story of everybody. It only tells us the story of the people who eventually changed the world and have their story recorded. So living off stage, Abraham is living there and married to his half-sister. Ew. Yeah. 
Um, and eventually God comes to him and says to him, you're going to be not just the exalted father, you're going to be the father of many people. Abraham then says, are you kidding? Seriously? Father? Great. So then he proceeds to find out ways for, he, for him to be a father. And he keeps making mistakes until finally God comes to him and says, no, no, you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah. And he laughs. It's a huck in Hebrew. He laughs. And a year later, he, he and Sarah have a son. And they name that son Yitzhak. Laughter. And Isaac, his son, grows up, doesn't get married till he's in his 40s, finally marries his, I'm sorry, first cousin, um, gets married, has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Sorry, Esau and Jacob. Now, how many of you know what your name means? Esau's name means red. Apparently, he had red hair. And a lot of it. Yaakov, Jacob's name, means heel grabber or deceiver. Not a great way to start your life, being named deceiver. Jacob eventually becomes the successor of Abraham, but not before. Not before he proceeds to lie, cheat, and steal his way to power to the point that he is driven from his home And he goes back to where Abraham is from, meets up with his first cousin, and marries his second cousins. Not one of them, but two of them. (laughs) Jacob then has a series of encounters with God. He has an encounter at a place called Bet-El, the house of God. He has an encounter uh, with God on a riverbank as he's on his way to meet his brother Esau after he's grown. And then the scriptures say that eventually Jacob leaves the, the land of Aram, the, the land of Haran. He comes back to the land where he was supposed to be. And he brings his 11 sons and one daughter. And then while he's there... God appears to him and gives him a vision. He says, now, Jacob, you're finally ready to inherit Abraham's legacy. Now you're going to receive from me the covenant. You're going to get everything that I promised him. I said to Abraham, he would be the father of nations. And now you have 11 sons. Those 11 sons are going to be nations. By the way, Abraham did become the father of Many nations. People related to Abraham displaced the native people of the entire region of what is today Israel, Jordan, northern Saudi Arabia. When you read through your Bible and you encounter all these wacko group named people, all right, when you encounter the Moabites and the Ammonites, those are descended from Abraham's nephew. The Edomites are descended from his grandson Esau. The Ishmaelites, or the, there's another word for them, the Arabs, are descended from one of his other sons. And then he has a number of sons by a, a second wife after his wife Sarah dies. He has, a, he has a wife named Keturah, and her sons 
go on to be mighty nations in the region. Um, And Midian, if you read through the Bible and you encounter Midian, they're one of Abraham's descendants. All these people groups are all related to Abraham, but Jacob's the one that matters. God appears to him, he says, Jacob, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you Yitzchayel. You're now mine. You were the, kneel, the, the heel grabber. Now you are mine. The L at the end means of God. And then the next thing that happens in Jacob's life is that his wife dies in childbirth. as she is struggling to give birth to his 12th son, his second son, with his favorite wife. The child is born and she calls him Benoni, the son of my suffering. And Israel calls him Benyamin, the son of my right hand, my strength. And he buries his wife in the cave of Mamre that his his grandfather Abraham had set up for his own wife. But Israel's story is not over. Remember that he's received the covenant of God. God has said to him, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to receive all the blessings. And the very next thing that happens after his son Benjamin is born and his wife dies is that his other ten sons conspire together to murder their, youngest, their second youngest brother, Joseph. Among the other things that his sons do, by the way, his son Reuben has a relationship with one of Jacob's wives. Fun. His sons Simeon and Levi get mad at a Canaanite prince, and rightfully so, for defiling their sister. So they have the entire male population of the city circumcised, and then while they're laying on their hospital beds, cut their heads off. Their fourth, his fourth son, I'm not even done yet. His fourth son, Judah, has a daughter-in-law who manages somehow to outlive two of his sons. And then she tricks him into having a kid with him. What a great family. And then Joseph, the youngest son, he's, or second youngest son, sees visions... Jacob dresses him in, of course, what, did, what does Jacob dress Joseph in? No. A long-sleeved coat. It's a mistranslation based on Greek that he's wearing a multicolored coat. And, and the reason that it came by, by the way, is the, the Egyptians depicted the, the, what they called the Asiatics, the people that are living in this area, wearing multicolored garments. So everybody just assumed it meant multicolored. It actually means long-sleeved. It was the garment that you gave to your virgin daughters. Why does he give it to Joseph? Don't ask me. All right? But Joseph is honored. His brothers hate him. They throw him in a pit. They, half of them want to kill him. And they wind up selling him into slavery into Egypt. Now, at this point, the history of Israel starts to split up. And there become two stories. There's the story of Judah, who is eventually the predecessor of David and Jesus. 
And there's the story of Joseph, whose two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, will become the tribes for all the troublemakers and civil wars and issues and problems in the rest of the history of Israel. And you want to talk about something weird. How is it that Joseph, the chosen son, the special son, the wonderful son, gives birth to the two that cause all of the trouble, whereas the one who has twins, by the way, with his daughter-in-law, becomes the father of the Messiah? That, by the way, is Judah in verse number 3. You know who doesn't appear in Matthew 1 is Joseph. Why do I tell you all of this? Well, Israel goes down into Egypt. We all know the story from Joseph the Technicolor Dreamcoat or Joseph the King of Dreams or Ten Commandments or whatever Bible movies you read. Everybody loves the story of Joseph. He goes down into Egypt. God gives him uh, the ability to see visions and eventually he becomes the salvation of the people of Israel. Because remember I was talking about how when the environment increased and, and populations increased, people moved around. Well, people had to move around when suddenly all the crops dried up too. So there's a famine and they have to go down to Egypt and there's a whole thing with Joseph and um, he kind of messes with his brothers and a lot of stuff that happens there. Then eventually they wind up in Egypt as part of a group you may have heard of uh, called in Egyptian records called the Hyksos, which are Semitic Asiatic people that move into Egypt. Israel's part of that group. They're not the group, they're just a part of that group. Um, the Egyptians, by the way, are not reliable. They never tell history correctly. And so they have this kind of invasion thing happen and then eventually a pharaoh rises up and makes them slaves. And then God frees them with Moses and all that stuff. We're going to get into Moses to David next week. Why do I tell you that long story? All that historical detail and all that stuff that some of you probably couldn't care less about. Because when we look at Jesus, we can't start the story where we enter it. We can't just sit around and wait, when do I walk in? When do I walk in? How many of you have ever done stage plays with somebody who just can't wait to be on stage? They don't care about anybody else. This is why I don't do theater, by the way. A, I can't memorize lines, so I make up everything, which makes me very difficult to work with. But B, when I'm in st on, on stage, I tend to be, I have a little bit of a bombastic streak. Um, I'm loud, I'm, I can be goofy, I can kind of dominate things, and uh, I really don't need to be doing that. But how many of you have ever been, if you've ever been in a situation with somebody who just can't wait to get on stage, you can't wait to get you, or you've ever had a conversation with somebody who literally you can see on their face that they're just waiting for you to stop making noises so they can jump in. We tend to do that with our faith. We tend to only worry about the parts that matter to us. We certainly don't want to hear the uncomfortable parts of the long story of Israel. 
We, we don't want to have to burden ourselves with all those other names. But the reality is that Jesus' incarnation, it came in this story. And if we don't interest ourselves in this story, we miss what God was doing. If we don't take the time to know the rest of Scripture, we will not understand the parts we think we like. Because for Jesus to be the son of Abraham is both for Jesus to be both the result of the covenants of God and the result of all the stumbling and failures of the people of God. That God used Judah and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and everybody else in the mix as they stumbled and failed to bring about the salvation of the world. Not despite them, but through them. And that puts a little bit of a different perspective on our journey and our faith. And maybe gives us a little bit better of an understanding that it doesn't just, everything doesn't rise and fall on me being perfect, me doing it right, me walking the path. I want to strive to do the best I can. I want to strive to honor God. I want to strive to be holy and righteous. But I'm a part of something much, much bigger that was around a long time before I started making my mistakes and is doing something much greater than just meeting my needs. The, the long history of Israel leading up to Jesus matters. Not just so that we interpret the Bible but so that we interpret ourselves within the story. So we see our place and our role and our journey in its proper context as God is at work. I'll close with just this one thing. You ever say, I don't matter. in the story you get the flip side there's those that don't think the story started until I got there and then there's those who say I don't matter I just love the fact that no one can name all 12 sons of Jacob I have seen college professors struggle over Zebulun, Naphtali, Iskar, Gad, uh, Asher and I'm missing some and yet they were no less significant than those that we do know. Both flip sides of it, we're a part of something bigger. The Christmas season, the incarnation of Jesus, it's about something bigger. Uh, thousands of years of scale. And we need to appreciate that, embrace that, and journey with it. 
Next week, we're going to go from the Exodus to my homeboy, David, um, who, is, who is my absolute hero in the Bible, um, mostly because I'm convinced he was short. Um, but uh, I used to think he was super tall. Now I think he was just short and stout. But um, remember, you're a part of something bigger. Maybe not the most exciting thing you'll learn this week. But super important, that God is at work in the long history of his people in ways that we may never see when we're down on the ground. It takes the perspective of thousands of years. That's a wild thing for me. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, help us to see you at work. And when we don't see you at work, to know that you are at work. Our doubts, our fears, our struggles, all those things. Our joys, our celebrations, our excitement, our accomplishments, all of those things. Those all have to be put in the context of the greater work you're doing. Thousands of years of engagement with mankind before you brought Jesus. At the right time, at the perfect time. All of the disappointments, struggles, sins, battles. And yet you were at work bringing us to Jesus. And now we live in his shadow, thousands of years removed. Help us to see ourselves as part of his story. Your story. Your grace. Your truth. Your life. And may this 